Hi there, and welcome to the Sam Sorbo Show. Today, I thought I'd take a little departure from our usual fare of interviewing people and talk about a conference that I just attended, uh, the Jordan Peterson ARC Conference in London. It was uh, produced by Jordan Peterson and Baroness Philippa Stroud. Got that name right. Um, and, uh, and of course, there were many other people that were involved. It was a very large conference for 1,500 um, world leaders uh, from around the globe. I believe there were 78 countries represented. It was really quite an uh, amazing event. And the theme of the event was to tell a better story. And so I just wanted to run through some of my impressions from the event and uh, encourage you to go online and watch some of the videos that they've posted. I don't believe they've posted everything, but they've posted a great deal. The event began, uh, one of the one of the first um, guests that they had on stage was Ayan Hirsi Ali, who I have followed for many years. I'm sure you know who she is. She was born in Africa and grew up Muslim and was intended for an arranged marriage that she did not wish to participate in. And she jumped off the plane, basically, uh, and and uh, somehow managed to jump off the plane in um, Holland. And then she became uh, a Dutch minister um, and obviously entered politics and has been quite outspoken since then. And she speaks very um, assuredly. Uh, one of the things that I think perhaps surprised, it's possible surprised uh, Jordan Peterson was that she ha she came out as a Christian basically um, during the conference, which I think I think surprised him. I could be wrong, but she she says, and this was to sort of set the stage for the whole conference. Um, he said to her, "You chose a different story," and she agreed. She chose a more life affirming story than the story that had been written for her that she would come of age and be married and uh, provide children for the marriage. And that would be her life, basically. Um, and so I thought that was a really fitting uh, beginning to what ended up being a three-day conference that was jam-packed with information and presentations that uplifted us and informed us um, and not only that, but part of the conference was expressly intended for us to get to know each other as attendees. So when they took a coffee break, it wasn't 15 minutes. It was more like half an hour. When they took a lunch break, it was an hour and a half. They had, they served breakfast, um, a continental breakfast, but they opened at eight and they didn't actually begin presentations until 930. So there was a concerted effort to make sure that people could connect. And there's also an app that went along with the conference. So even before I got there, I was reaching out to people on the app to, um, to make contact and to learn more about their efforts and what they are doing to uh, make the world uh, tell a better story, basically. Um, there was somebody who presented about this idea that we have reached a cultural inflection point. Um, in other words, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're almost lost in the desert. We're almost saying, well, now what? We've gotten ourselves into a fine pickle kind of thing. And I think that that's, that's almost true. 
um, education is at an all time. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We're, we're questioning our very institutions. And that's a cultural inflection point when we really start to question whether the institutions that for so many years we've assumed were benevolent, whether they actually are. And I think that it, 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 we should be encouraged not only to question, but to answer those questions and then to dive deeper and find out what those answers mean. So in other words, obviously, I look at everything through a lens of education. We are questioning our educational institutions. We're questioning the schools. And it's not enough. And this is what I this is what I say to parents who are like fighting with the schools to do a better job to to serve the kids and and not um, not get distracted by the woke ideology that they're that they're peddling now, and get back to basics. But in fact, to go deeper than that and say, why are they doing it this way? Because you have to you have to understand the mechanisms behind what's happening. And then you can actually do something about it. So, and by the way, I think it's important to take, to take a, how do I put it? Uh, you know, a graceful approach um, rather than a combative approach. Now it's true. There are people who are involved in this, who are combatants and they are fighting for the wrong side. And so you will come up against them. But there are a lot of people who are just, they were drafted, they don't even know when, they don't even know how, they're just following orders. And those are the people that you can likely win over to your side with a little bit of logic. And so we have to dive deeper to find out what's going on behind the scenes underneath it all so that we can try to win people to the, the, the right side. Um, there was a presenter who talked about power being the ultimate mediator between people. That is the story that they tell. That's the story that the globalists, the elitists, um, the Marxists, right? That power is the ultimate mediator. In fact, their whole story is a story about power. It's about who has, who got more power and where their power came from and how to wrest power from them. Um, and so it was presented that the central choice today is between this idea of power and the power of ideas. And so we are proposing that we have powerful ideas. Um, the, th that there is injustice in the world is probably irrefutable, but the postmodernists lack the truth. Uh, and if there's no truth, there's only power. And so that's why they see they see this idea of power as the only solution. They need to grab power and then they need to um, enforce fairness, basically. Um, they need to enforce justice. The, the, the point is that they can't succeed because their oppressive nature will never end. Their, their utopian future never arrives. And I was, I was talking to people at the conference actually about this. For instance, the French Revolution was a power struggle. And it was Marxist, basically, in its, um, it was in, in its sort of ideology, this idea that the wealthy have all the power. We need to depose 
um, the wealth, the wealthy, if we kill them and take their wealth and redistribute it, then the power will be better, better distributed. And that's, that's not, that's not actually what ended up happening. So they got the wealthy and they beheaded the well, you know, the guillotine, they beheaded the wealthy, but the guy who came up with the idea for the guillotine, he, he began as upper middle class, but when the wealthy were disposed of all of a sudden he was the wealthy. And so he was put to the guillotine because their oppression never ends. Um, on the flip side, we have the Judeo-Christian ethic, which purports to bring truth to power, speak truth to power. And that that's this was the beginning of the whole conference, was this idea that you speak truth to power because truth is all-powerful. And that ethic turns actually can turn an enemy into a friend. That's the crazy thing about it. It's not a, it's, it's not a, an equation. It's not a mathematical equation. They, they see the world as a zero sum game. We know that the world is actually a positive sum game because we've created wealth over the centuries. Uh, most notably this last century, we've created a tremendous growth in wealth. In fact, they had um, at the conference Bjorn Lomberg presented and some other people to talk about how poverty is now almost nearly eliminated and will be eliminated by, I can't remember, but within the next two decades, something like that, that the severely impoverished will, will not be so severely impoverished anymore and that the poor have been lifted so, so greatly over the past 50 years that it boggles the mind. And so when you hear them say, well, the, the world is ending and we're running out of fuel. We're running out of fossil fuels, which by the way, all of the, all of the so-called green energy uses fossil fuels. It, it needs fossil fuels in order to provide green energy. So there is no such thing as green energy unless you're just walking. <laughs> and so in any case, um, this idea that that life is a zero-sum game and that if somebody has power, other people have no power is not actually true. And that, I think that's one of the foundational aspects of the better story. So how do you turn an enemy into a friend? Through grace, through reconciliation, through forgiveness. That's a, that's a typical Christian story. The foundation of the Christian faith is, is this idea of forgiveness that we all need it and we all can get it. That's, that's the foundational aspect of the faith. And strangely, or maybe not so strangely, it's that the, the, their story is the antithesis of that. Their story is there's no forgiveness. There's only death. So I was, interestingly, um, today I was listening to, I guess, I guess it was a podcast, um, and they were talking about how with the COVID lockdowns, you know, the scientists basically deny the, the, the existence of a soul. 
they deny the existence of the soul because it's not scientifically you know, provable, therefore the soul doesn't exist. But if you believe that you have a soul, then you know that death is not the end. It's just the, the turning, a turning, a turning point. And so because they deny the soul and they rely solely on, solely on uh, science, they're trying to deny the inevitable, which is death. And this fear of death is really what generated so much tyranny from COVID, so much acceptance of tyranny. And I think we have to get back to, to basics. We have to teach our children those basics, that they, that they have a soul and that they shouldn't be afraid of death. Okay, so I'm just going to go through some of my notes. We need to accept human beings as they are and deal with power by checking it with the, the understanding. The way that you check power is with an understanding that there's always a higher power. And the problem that we face um, as human beings is we elect people to be in power, but then it goes to their heads. And then they think, oh, well, I've got all the power. Now I can do whatever I want. But we don't want them thinking that. We want them thinking that they actually have to report further up the chain to God, and that will keep their power in check. And, of course, we've lost that. And so now we have a government uh, that I would say maybe even a majority of them don't believe in God. And so why why not? If you don't believe, then how then how can you claim to know the difference between good and evil? And you'll just do what's good in your own sight, basically. Um, I heard this quote. I thought this was really fascinating. Man is both the glory and the scum of heaven. Um, and I did not write down who said it, but I believe it was a, a Catholic saint or something. Um, freedom. And then and then we had Bishop Barron come out. And while I was... Um, I was a little bit disappointed that he didn't actually cite the gospel, which I thought was kind of odd um, because he he's a well-known Catholic priest. So why wouldn't he just lean into that? And, and frankly, there, the, there's a wonderful video online of Constantine um, who talks about, talks a little bit about, I believe it was him who talked about that. Th this idea that most of the people in the room were Christian there were a smattering of atheists, probably not even 10%. Um, and there were some Jewish people in the room. And aside from that, they didn't go into particulars. But it was mainly Christians, which is not saying, it's just a, an observation. Uh, Bishop Barron came out and said, freedom is not the power to do what you like. Freedom is the power to do what you ought. And in order to do what you ought, you have to know the difference between what you like and what you ought. Um, if you if you absolutize freedom, you get anarchy. If if it's only freedom, then it's anarchy. And so freedom has to be constrained by responsibility. So the freedom, the freedom, and and this basically goes down to founding documents too: life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So the idea is that you have liberty such that you can pursue happiness, but happiness 
defined by the founders was not joy or just being happy. It was the idea that you are fulfilling your purpose, your responsibility on earth. And I think that to a large degree, that's what education ought to endeavor to show the child, the student. Education should be the, the pursuit of the discovery of the seed that is planted in the child, of the child's purpose on earth, of the meaning of his life. And we have a paucity, we have a, we have a dearth right now, I think, in our youth of understanding that their lives have meaning. And if your life, if, if, if you switch, if you turn to nihilism, then anything is acceptable. Anything is possible. And that's a danger. So, um, so freedom, uh, freedom to serve, right? Why? Because in service, you will begin to see your value. Um, freedom to do anything just enslaves a person to his own whims. And that's, for instance, what they're doing to children in school now. They're, they are purposely showing them um, sexuality prematurely before the children can be responsible. And then the children um, learn to just follow their desires. And by the way, this in an absence of any kind of moral structure. So why wouldn't a child just do whatever the heck he wanted at, at any given time? This is one of the dangers of sending your children to a secular school is that they, they supersede the parent's authority and they tell the child lies. And then you, and you don't have a leg to stand on because you're the one who sent the child there. So, um, so Moses went to free the slaves, but in order to do that, he had to stand against the tyranny and he had to say, let my people go, right? And what were they going to? Let my people go in order to do what? In order to worship God in the desert. That's, that's why they got their freedom. They got their freedom for a purpose. And the purpose was to make their lives better. But it was it was a greater purpose than that. One of the things that I think Ayan Hirsi Ali shared with us is um, an idea that, um, and this is a this is a hard one, that civilization civilization today is a cut flower, it's it's in a vase, but it has no roots. Right? We're being we're being um, divorced from our roots. And a good friend of mine said that traditions are solutions to problems we've long since forgotten. So we've forgotten the problems, but we, we maintain the solutions for as long as it serves us. And then we, we cut our traditions, the problems will come back tenfold. And I think that might be where we are, but to, to view civilization as a cut flower, um, we need to, we need to reseed the land. That's why I, I'm a proponent of home education, because I think with home education, you can, you can water the seed that's within your child and foster the, the sense of freedom, 
that they need in order to pursue their happiness in this great country. And they will understand intrinsically, they should understand the value of that. And, and even if they won't, hopefully that will be one of the things that you teach them. Um, so I think her point was, we are still relying on the flower. We still do have the seed packets, but we have to go and dig them out. Uh, take them out of storage, basically. We have the symbols and the remnants of our Western heritage, but we have to grow from the roots again. And we have been severed from our roots with this nihilistic Marxism that has entered onto the scene. Um, they talked about the great rewiring of childhood. They interviewed Jonathan Haidt, who does such an amazing job in his books. And um, I think his new book is called Phone-Based Childhood, but at least that's that, that was uh, some of the subject matter of what he talked about. He said that in 2010, 60% uh, of British kids went over to friends' houses, but in, in very short time, it's dropped to 20% of children who, who ever spend time at their friends' houses. And that is a loss. We, we need to spend interaction, human interaction, in-person, physical interaction with other people um, he talked about how suicide is rampant, particularly among teen secular girls, both on the left and on the right. Um, he he said, uh, he asked, should children grow up playing together or should they stand on a platform to say things in public and open themselves up to show social shaming? And what he's talking about there is social networks are not beneficial for children. And the reason is because they amplify everything that the child does. And the child is not of an, of an age or a maturity level to have everything that he's doing be amplified, whether it's good or bad, frankly. And so his idea is no smartphones before the age of 14. I would go even farther than that. No smartphones before the age of 18. Um, he said no social media before 16. I tend to agree with that. And maybe not even then. Your schools have to be phone free, he says. Absolutely phone free. And then um, uh, gear up more playtime and social in-person time for your kids. And I think that that's a very good, I think that's a great um, set of sort of uh, rules to have in your house. Um, the problem that he pointed out is it's a bit of a collective collective action problem. In other words, you might be able to do this, but it's going to be an uphill battle if you don't get your friends to do it with their kids. And so the idea is start some kind of a group in your school or in your community where you're not the only one who's the big holdout. Now, I know a little bit about what it's like to be the big holdout. Um, when my kids were little, I refused sleepovers. And uh, the my household basically was against me. My husband didn't understand it. Um, but I, and I will tell you this, the way that I won was I said that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to sleep well. And my sleep was important. So it was basically, it was my fault. I was accepting responsibility. I just said, yes, it's entirely my fault. And I can't, I know that I won't be able to sleep well. 
and therefore it we can't let it happen and then slowly over time we had some very good friends and so we allowed them to spend the night and then that crept into well why can't my kids spend the night with them and so i i significantly delayed the age at which my children were allowed to do sleepovers however all of my children are saying today that they will not allow any sleepovers. And I know why, but I'm not going to share, but things happen on sleepovers that, and there's no reason to have a sleepover. So don't do it. And you might be the only holdout and that's okay. If you can explain to your kids your reasoning and use something that's, um, by the way, like my inability to sleep is completely sort of, how do you put it? It's sort of an irrational thing, but I have no control over it. Just like they have no control over it. So it's, it is what it is. Find something like that and use that to protect your kids. Uh, right. We had a presenter talk about free market capitalism as the greatest antidote to poverty that the world has ever seen. And that's true. But they, free markets only truly prosper in societies where there is a mutual understanding of virtue. Corrupt societies have cronyism. And our struggle is we open trade with China. And China never adopted our understanding of virtue. And so it's, it's an uneven playing field, which is what initially Donald Trump had intended to solve, to fix. Um, they, they talked about different forms of, uh, of capitalism. Um, they talked about creative disruption, uh, creative destruction, where through, through the creative process, one thing becomes old and it gets destroyed by the newer thing. That's a, that's, that's an improvement on it. Um, they talked about how our government has now learned to privatize gains and socialize losses which is funny because it's the exact opposite of what I talk about our schools doing or us doing for our schools. So by privatizing gains and socializing losses, we, we will use the banking crisis. Um, when the banking crisis hit in 2008, the government came in and said, well, these banks are too big to fail. So what we're going to do is we're not going to let them fail. We're going to take care of all the losses, which meant I took care of the loss. I helped fund the losses. They helped fund the losses. These people helped fund the losses. The banks were no longer responsible for their losses. But all of the money that had shifted during the great big bubble to build the banks up, that was all privatized. Because the banks personally took that. The, the, the employees, the, the direct, directors of the bank personally took the gains and then they spread the losses out over everybody. This is a very dangerous place to be in our culture. It is, it is opposite to our values because our cultural values say, you take responsibility for you, sink or swim. And instead the government's saying, no, 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 we'll take care of this for you. It's a very dangerous place to be because the moment that people understand they can vote themselves money, we're done. So we need to get back to basics. Um, 
So, so I'll go into just briefly the, the opposite of that, that I talk about for the schools, we tend to personalize our failures and corporatize or socialize our gains. So I just heard somebody say today, I became a, I became a teacher because I had the best teacher and I had such a great experience in school. And so that's why I, that's why I love what I, you know, I love this part of me, but at the same time, they'll same person will say, oh, you know, I, I couldn't go into math because I don't have a math brain. Not because the school couldn't teach me math and the teachers couldn't help me with math, but my failure, personal, my personal failure, but the success of the school. And so I want to sort of snap people out of that. All right. Um, they talked about children. They had, they had, I think four different tracks of sort of focus for the path forward for, for telling a better story. One of them was very much children in the family. Um, we talked about the children have, I love this phrase, irreducible needs. They are neurologically vulnerable. They need attachments. Um, uh, there was a presenter who talked about how mothers regulate children's emotions the first three years. Trust me, I was sitting up and taking notes during this whole piece. Um, after the first three years, children begin to internalize their feelings of security. Um, she, she said that approximately only, I thought this was really interesting, 60% of mothers in the U.S. would stay home if they were given the choice and the resources. Um, then she talked about adolescence, the age from ages uh, 9 to 25. So 25 is still adolescence, considered adolescence. She says that's also a critical brain development time for children, but most notably, the father becomes more important during that time, that children need stability and community. They need two parents. They need grandparents. They need extended family, and they need their faith-based community. She talked about how technology has a negative impact on the mental health of children, that um, the virtual connections then isolate the child from her peers and her family. And so, and then she went into the ways that parents could step up, that they need to educate themselves uh, for the future with children. So we need to reorient children to optimize um, the parents' time with them. We need to we need to pay closer attention to that. She really advocated for no institutional care for children under three. And of course, we have daycare facilities for children as young as you know months old. So um, she talked about prison centers being just um, their their prisons or centers for dad deprived boys, basically. Um, that the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. Uh, because dad-style parenting builds a tolerance for postponed gratification, which is a predictor of success. The ability to postpone gratification is a predictor of success, full stop. Um, it builds assertiveness instead of aggressiveness. So here she's talking about how dads will roughhouse with kids. And I know this was true in my family. I never roughhoused with my kids. But dad, my husband, Kevin, roughhoused with them all the time. He used to throw them on the bed. They called it dolphin. And he would just toss them in the air and they would land on the bed. And what, what it is, is the dad 
will wrestle with a child and the child knows that the dad could win in an, in an instant and hurt him, right? He knows it's a big, powerful daddy that could hurt him, but doesn't. And that teaches the child not aggressiveness, but instead assertiveness, which is a good quality, right? Um, and, and by the way, roughhousing is viewed as a treat to children. And so they will then obey because they want the treat that plants seeds of empathy. And so you'll get more mature, independent, empathetic, higher and higher self-esteem from those simple qualities that we seem to just take for granted and move on from. Um, oh, I have, okay. So I have a little bit more from Bishop Barron here. Um, he said, freedom is very near. Uh, sorry, he was quoting Bob Dylan. I thought this was funny. Freedom is very near, but without truth, what's it worth? Something like that. And I thought, I thought that's very interesting because you could be free, but if you don't have the truth, you're still lost. So, um, so he talked about freedom. His whole speech was about freedom, uh, freedom of indifference. Free, free will hovers above the yes and no, makes a choice based on the assumption of no constraints. I will decide for or against truth or falsehood, whichever freedom from external constraint, where the law is the enemy of freedom, right? That's the, that's the misunderstanding of the left, is that somehow laws are enemies of freedom. But if you shift instead to a mindset of freedom for excellence, freedom to be the best that you can be, then you're, then you're disciplining with desire, right? To make the achievement of the good first possible and then effortless. And so he talked about this path that we're, that we're on to try to become effortless at being good, at pursuing truth. Um, like basketball is no fun if there are no rules. You need the rules of the game in order to make the game fun. Otherwise it's not challenging. Oh, I don't have to make a basket. That's my new rule. I don't need to make a basket to win basketball. Well, then nobody's gonna play with me and I'm not gonna play because it's no fun because there's no challenge to it. That kind of a thing. So, uh, you know what? I think I'm gonna leave it there. I, I wanted to... I wanted to share this conference with you. Uh, I want to encourage you to go online and take a look at some of the videos that are there. Um, one of the things that I really loved about the conference is that they brought in other disciplines. So it wasn't just scholars and philosophers that were presenting their ideas to us. They also had an orchestra. They had singers singing some songs. They had a poet who recited, um, performed his poetry for us. And then um, they had an artist, uh, a Japanese artist with some of his artwork there. And he also gave a talk. I will tell you the poetry blew me away and I'm not alone. So the last day the poet came out and we were familiar with him now. Um, and the poem that he shared with us and he, perf he performed it with his sort of Cockney accent. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what his accent was, but, um, and it's, it's like, it's spoken word, but it was so extraordinarily powerful. There was 
There was a slide presentation to go with it. At the end, we had tears running down our cheeks. And we stood giving him an ovation faster than I've seen many standing ovations happen. Just everybody just rose to their feet. We, we couldn't help it. And we applauded for so long that um, Baroness Philippa Stroud came out and she had to invite him back on stage because we weren't sitting down. And the reason we weren't sitting down is because we couldn't. We were so moved. So this is intended to encourage you in your walk, in your efforts to fight for the good, the true, the beautiful in our culture. Um, and I, I wanted to share it with you. We were encouraged to live out our kingdom values, joy, patience, kindness, self-control, humility, all of those things, but also to bring light into the darkness, to turn over the salt shaker and pour it out over our own communities. And so I encourage you to do so. Um, it's possible that you could watch the videos online from the conference and then maybe invite your friends over and either send them send them a video to watch before they get there or maybe watch the video once they get there and then have a discussion. I think we need to be forming community. Uh, it's something that I'm trying to do in my own life um, and I encourage you to do it. It's not that difficult to do. And uh, I think you'll be vastly rewarded from doing that because we all need those connections. We all need to know that we are not alone in the wilderness. That's it for me. This is the Sam Sorbo show. Thanks so much for tuning in.